the Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guests from the Prosecutor's Podcast, Allison Brett, a round of direct examination, and then Jared becomes one with the universe. The division between cosmos and the man melt away and time itself becomes less a river than an ocean. His empathic connection with all living things becoming an unbridled cacophony of the full spectrum of feelings and experiences. The self reducing into one imperceptible singularity encompassing the entirety of all that is, was, and will be. Or as close as we can get to that with a shit ton of booze. But before all that, your corporeal host, Jared Correa. The Legal Toolkit Podcast is live, right now. Well, actually I recorded it live and this is the edited version of live recording. Uh, never mind. As you know, we still call it the Legal Toolkit, even if I have not picked up an actual tool to fix an actual thing, maybe ever. I'm your host, Jared Korea. Tom Kennedy was unavailable because he was working on the script for the fake Tom Kennedy show. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at www.redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software, Inc. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. You can find out more about Gideon at www.gideonlegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with Brett and Alice, the co-hosts of the Prosecutor's Podcast, I want to discuss time management. Time can be a fickle bitch, for sure. Although there are those who dedicate their entire lives to protecting the space-time continuum, like the distinguished Dr. Emmett Brown and the Watcher and Owen Wilson from Loki in the Marvel Comics universe, for most of us, time is the enemy. It makes us old. And ultimately, it kills us. And in the meantime, it means that we can't get a damn thing done. Our guests today, as I mentioned, are podcast hosts, full-time prosecutors with young families. How do they manage all that? We'll ask them. But really, how does anyone manage all that? It's a fucking slog. Of course, short of building a situation in which you're pulling a late career Benjamin Button, there are things you can do to make the most of your time and ensure that you're locking up maximum efficiency inside of your law practice, which is important because the most efficient lawyers make the most money. The first thing to revisit is probably the utility of the nine to five regime people have gotten sucked into in the industrial age, probably you too, right? Seriously, is there any reason to work nine to five? other than reliance on an outmoded notion of productivity that Henry Ford and some dudes came up with in the early 20th century. Probably not. I mean, you're a knowledge worker. You're not slinging it in the factory, adding a singular piece to the same package time and time again. And you use a computer, which is the game changer of all work-based game changers. Turn it on anywhere you are, you get an internet connection, you can work. So if you want to start working at 11 a.m. or start working at 8 p.m. or you want to take a nap in the middle of the day, fucking do it. What does it matter? As long as you get your work done. 
I sometimes take a nap in the middle of the day when I'm tired. I'm not afraid to admit it. And my wife, who continually reminds me that she has a real job, um, <laughs> says to me, that's kind of weird. <laughs> and my response is always, I'm tired and unproductive right now. I think it'd be weirder if I didn't take a nap. She probably thinks I'm a lazy piece of shit, which, yeah. But for real, sleeping in the middle of the day is not just for the unemployed anymore. So as you might have gathered from this small diatribe, I think that you should work when you're at your most productive, especially when trying to accommodate those larger projects that you have to do, especially the ones that you don't want to do. And so that might require a drastic change to your schedule. At the start of the pandemic, you all remember the pandemic, right? I've been working at home by myself for like five or six years. It was truly amazing. I could watch a movie in the morning. I could drink a vanilla milkshake in the nude at three in the afternoon. All of a sudden, my idyllic life came crashing down around me. Here comes fucking COVID, and now everyone's home with me all the time. And whenever I had a free moment, my kids were up my ass about something. I was all of a sudden the IT person for homeschool, managing projects when classes weren't happening and making lunch at lunchtime rather than doing so the night before and stuffing it into a bag. It really, really sucked. But I realized that I had to somehow recapture the three to four hours I used to have but lost during the middle of the day. And that's when I became addicted to cocaine. Just kidding. Instead of turning to hardcore drugs like a modern-day Rick James, I started waking up earlier, like at 4 a.m. That meant that I had an uninterrupted three-hour block every morning to work on the big projects for that day. I could work out, and then I could handle the rest of the day as it came to me. Now, I don't wake up that early every day, but most days I do, and I find that I'm very productive in the early morning hours. Maybe you are too, or maybe you're not. Maybe you're a night owl. Maybe you work better in the afternoon when I'm napping. That's cool. Just start experimenting to see when you're at your most productive and try to build your work schedule around that. Set aside distraction-free power hours so you can focus. Use a Pomodoro or a tomato timer to schedule short breaks. Find a procrastination buddy to help kick your ass when you're slacking. Whatever your jam ends up being, now is a great time to view your routine. Time, as it turns out, is on your side. Now, before we take some of that time to talk to our guests, Alice and Brett from the Prosecutors Podcast, about the ongoing true crime boom, let's see what kind of arresting stats Joshua Lennon has for us this week. That's right, boys and girls. It's the Clio Legal Trends Report Minute. Did you know that 42% of solo law firms operate without commercial office space? In fact, 9% of solo law firms gave up their office space in the last year alone. I'm Joshua Lennon lawyer in residence at Clio. We're seeing an overwhelming number of solo attorneys migrating their legal practices to internet-based cloud technologies, giving them the freedom to practice from anywhere. New research based on data from tens of thousands of legal professionals show that with the right technologies, solo lawyers can make $50,000 more revenue than other law firms on a per lawyer basis. This is because cloud solutions like online payments, client portals, and client intake software create the types of efficient legal experiences that today's clients look for. To learn more about these opportunities and much more for free, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for solo law firms at clio.com forward slash solo. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O. 
So, let's get to the fava beans and Chianti of this podcast. It's time to interview our guests. My guests today are Alice and Brett, the co-hosts of the Prosecutors podcast. Alice, Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this is cool. So I actually like, I listened to a decent amount of true crime stuff. And I came across your podcast and I thought it was really good. And I thought this angle that you had where you're actually prosecutors in real life was pretty cool. Like I thought the analysis was pretty in-depth. So I know you run this podcast yourself and I'm impressed with what you've been able to pull off here. So can you tell folks listening a little bit about the podcast and why you decided to start it? And Alice, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having us on. Like you said, we're full-time prosecutors. Brett and I work together. We've known each other for years. And, you know, our life is really just talking about true crime all the time, whether it's, you know, other podcasts or um, shows and also our work. Brett, is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. I mean, Alice and I talk about true crime all the time. So at some point we decided, let's just do a show on it. And then... (laughs) You know, the pandemic happened. We had literally recorded one episode. We recorded that episode together in the same room. And then like the next day, it was the pandemic. So from that point on, we record separately. Alice is in her closet. I'm in my little office I've got here. And and yeah, I mean, we just sort of ran with it and really wanted to bring that sort of evidence-based approach and answer questions people have because a lot of people don't understand how the legal system works or how the justice system works or why judges make certain decisions or why prosecutors make certain decisions. And that opportunity to educate people, we actually thought people might find that boring. We were kind of surprised, but we've just gotten an overwhelmingly positive response. People want more of it. They want more legal nerd talk, as we call it. So (laughs) that's been good to see. (laughs) So most people, if they pick up a hobby might be like, hey, I see this stuff all the time at work. I'm going to do something different. But you guys double down. (laughs) Does it ever get boring for you? Do you ever get sick of talking about this stuff? No, no, I don't think so. Brett's like my best friend. Alice is so sweet. (laughs) Alice is my best friend too. So we get to do this. this I know, we get to do this thing. We share a wall at the office. So we do... We do see each other a lot. I actually told Alice I have troubles talking to her in person now because I'm so used to talking to her over the podcast. So it's kind of weird when I actually have to see her. This is a beautiful story. Best friends in true crime. But you both have like real jobs. You're full-time prosecutors. You got families. You're trying to podcast one episode a week after flaming out at two a week. It's really hard, by the way. So, Alice, I'll start with you. Like, how, how do you balance all this stuff? That's hard to do. And that's a great question. And, you know, all of the lawyers know that being a litigator, your schedule is not your own. You're beholden to yeah. the court schedule, to trial schedules, to, you know, right to speedy trial, constitutional rights, those sorts of things. And not to sugarcoat it. It's just what all lawyers know to do. A lot of sleepless nights and you prioritize. Uh, This is my only hobby. It's very helpful that my one hobby corresponds with my one friend in my town, (laughs) which is (laughs) (laughs) so there's just a there's not a lot of uh, margin. But, you know, when you're doing something you love and I feel lucky that I'm a lawyer who enjoys what I do. I really love my job and I really love the podcast and I love my kids. And so that's kind of all of my time, 100 20% of my time is spent doing those three things. And I say that because I think other lawyers will recognize and appreciate that we're not trying to say, oh, we have so much time. It's so easy. It's not easy. (laughs) We work all day, go home, feed our children, 
put them to bed. And pretty much as soon as we tuck our kids into bed, we text each other and say, you know, are you ready to record? And we record late into the night. And then oftentimes I'm plugging back in to finish work um, after we record. We have awesome spouses as well. I don't want to leave them out because they, uh, they definitely help make sure we have time to do this. And some of it's just planning ahead. Alice and I are trying a case together next yeah. year and we know when it is and we know how much time it's going to take. And so we're making sure <laughs> to build ahead and have, you know, a bunch of stuff recorded. So we're not missing any, anything when we're, you know, in trial prep and in trial and, and so far cross your fingers, we've been able to, to do that balance. Like you said, we started off doing two episodes a week and that was impossible. So we had to go to one episode <laughs> and I think one episode so far has worked really well. Way to thank the spouses. You get to sleep in the bed, not on the couch tonight, bro. So, That's important. <laughs> well, let me ask you a follow-up question on what Alice was talking about. So, like, you're just not tossing off shows like I'm doing here. Like, you got to look into these cases, right? At least refresh them because you're covering some of these popular cases. And there's a lot of these true crime people out there who are, like, obsessive over these cases. So, like, there's some research component or preparation component that goes in here as well. So you're not just hitting the button to press record, right? So how do you build that into your schedule? Well, that's what the weekend's for. And also, <laughs> you know, we record. The good thing about being, you know, with somebody that you're really good friends with and you connect really well with, Alice and I, when we sit down to record, if we're doing an hour-long episode, we might record an hour and 10 minutes. I mean, we are we're really good at, at doing it together. We always have a plan. And we're able to not waste a lot of time on the actual recording. So, you know, we're using one night a week to do that. And then the rest of our free time is doing that research. And basically, you know, you kind of have to, you're going to have some cases that require a ton of research. I mean, there are cases where, you, where we have read the entire transcript of a trial to get yeah. ready for. Wow. So we did Scott Peterson. And yep. that was a six episode story. And we read basically the entire trial transcript. So we could really go into the evidence and tell people things they had never heard before about that case. Mm. And then there are cases that it's a little bit easier to do the research on where you don't necessarily have to do that kind of depth. But you're 100% right. The true crime community and the people who are consuming this, they are smart and they, they know the cases. And if you mess something up or if you skip something... People are going to complain, and we've been pretty fortunate up to this point that we've been able to to cover these cases in a lot of depth. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you that. Are people complaining like, well, it was actually the left tail light on the car that was out and not the right tail light? I, I would imagine that gets pretty granular, right? A hundred percent. They absolutely do. And it's fine. I mean, it's it's funny, but they do. Or if we use a word wrong, like in one of our recent episodes, we said spendthrift, but we meant like skin flint, right? And we just oh, got yeah, all yeah. these comments about, you use spendthrift incorrectly. It doesn't mean what you said. It's like, okay, thank you. Uh, and, and then you're like, why say- am I doing this again? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Alice. You know, I was going to say that, you know, yes, the true crime community, uh, there's a lot of attention to detail and it's wonderful. But I do have to say, we're really lucky. The people who listen to our show and we encourage people to criticize us, we encourage people to write in. For the most part, they don't focus on those tiny details. I think because if they listen to an entire episode of ours, you really have to be committed to listen because 
like yeah. Brett said, our episodes are more than an hour long. And we kind of give our entire way of thinking as lawyers to our audience, right? We're not, we're not jumping to conclusions. We're showing our work, you know, so to speak. We're showing them how we get places. And I think our listeners respect that and see how we arrive at the decisions. And we've kind of told our audience, you know, there are important facts and there are facts that are not that important. They don't, um, mm. they don't change the outcome. And that being a good lawyer and being a good you know, detective is knowing what's important and what's not. And so I think by building that almost response in, <laughs> it sometimes cuts off those uh, arguments to us, which is nice. Ah, oh, that's an old lawyer trick. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you one more question on the like subject of the podcast itself. And then I want to talk a little bit about like the true crime boom, which still seems to be going on. So I'll start with Alice here. Like, what case did you have the hardest time getting through, either in terms of like the research or the subject matter? Because some of this stuff can get pretty gnarly. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good question. You know, um, I think the true crime community constantly has this battle that it is entertainment, right? We would be disingenuous to say it isn't entertainment. But on the other hand, it's um, really wanting to get justice for victims as well. And right. one of the cases that just struck me to my core, uh, one of the first cases I would just say that struck me to my core was um, the Delphi murders, murders mm. of two young girls in rural Indiana on a daytime hike that they were on. And it happened quickly. And the one of the girls was able to capture the killer, both on video and audio. Uh, she had that foresight to turn on her camera and start recording. And the killer still at large, mm -hmm. no one knows who it yep. is. And that's, that's really shocking to a lot of people. I know a lot of people are very committed to this case, but I think it was really difficult for me because their childhood is not unlike the childhood I hope to give my kids. It's mm -hmm. not unlike the childhood that I had, right? Spending a lot of time outdoors in nature and for something so horrendous to happen in a sleepy, quiet town really strikes home that this could happen anywhere to anyone. Um, and I think the added having children, you know, pretty young children, and I want to protect them from the world. Even though we are, in, you know, we are prosecutors, we kind of see a lot of things. It's still a, a shock when you realize maybe you can't control everything and protect your kids forever. Yeah, that's a really sad story. And uh, I think that's the first episode of yours that I listened to, but I thought you both did a really nice job, like really thinking through the set of facts, like what happened on the bridge, what happened under the bridge, what happened around the bridge. That's a case I think that a lot of people are interested in. Brett, is that answer different for you? Like, is there another case that you would spotlight? No. I mean, I'll say this sort of generally. I mean, I never thought this stuff would get to me. I've been listening to true crime and reading true crime books for forever mm -hmm. since I read, you know, In Cold Blood by Truman oh, Capote wow. like wow. 15 Go, years ago, 20 years ago. Way back. Yeah. 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 And and it's so cliche to say that your perspective changes when you have kids, but my perspective completely changed when I had kids. And there was a point where Alice and I had done like three or four cases in a row that were all about the murder of children. And finally, I was starting to have nightmares about it. And I was like, look, we can't yeah. do kids anymore. Like, we've got we to gotta take a break. And it's, it can't be a permanent break because those cases are the cases you want to solve more than any other, right? So whether it's Delphi or the Evansdale girls, I mean, these are cases that, that cry out for justice, and we really believe the more attention on these cases, the more likely somebody's going to say, huh, I remember that, and I know something, and, and you know, the whole case breaks open. So we definitely want to cover them, but they're tough. I mean, those are tough cases. Yeah, the kids' stuff is hard. Uh, let me ask you a related question that I didn't have in mind in advance, but like, 
have you been able to get a tip that solved a case at this point yet? No, well, not that we know of. People do give us tips, and we got a lot of tips on Delphi, and we sort of huh. either directed those people, if they felt comfortable with doing it, talking directly to the FBI and the and the police in Indiana on the tip line, or if they didn't, and it's always funny, the people who are like, I will tell you this, and you can give it to them, but I don't want to be involved. And we would just sort of forward that on. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, no, no, we haven't broken any cases yet, but you know, that's always the hope is that somebody out there is going to hear something. And I think there was a there was a case recently, and I forget the exact details, where somebody was listening to a true crime podcast, and it was about a body that had been found that nobody knew who it was, and they put two and two together and realized it was their teacher who'd gone missing like twenty years ago, oh, and wow. that person was identified. So it does it does happen. That's crazy. Yeah. So there's a public service element here for sure. L- let me ask you more generally. The true crime thing has been crazy for years probably ever since Serial when it hit the mainstream. What do you guys think motivates that? And how long do you think this will last? That's a great question. I think if uh, we knew the answer to that, we'd be uh, (laughs) able to shed a lot more light. But, you know, I I think at least for me, and a lot of true crime listeners are women, I think for me, it's it's a lot of justice that we all have, right? We want to see those who do bad things be punished and victims, you know, have some justice to them. But I also think that it's a way to process our deepest fears as a society, both personally and on a more global stage uh, through other people's stories, right? That's how parables work. That's how stories work. That is a way to process what is going on in our own lives and in our own society through another lens. It does sometimes seem like there's a lot of chaos in the world. And I wonder if focus on a specific case can help us feel somewhat in control of that chaos and hopefully bring some justice to individuals that you don't have to be making massive changes in order to make a difference in the world. I think that was a pretty eloquent answer. I could see you being very (laughs) successful in a court situation. (laughs) So one thing you brought up there that I think is really interesting, and I've heard this as well. I I don't know the stats that like most of the true crime listening audience or watching audience is female. I know you said part of that is related to a sense of justice, making sure that bad people get punished. Is there other reasons, you think, why this is so heavily dominated by a female listenership? That's a great question. And yeah, I had heard that statistic from others, but we also know that from our own podcast, right? We can mm. see kind of the, the demographics generally of who listens, and we do see that it heavily skews towards women. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess as, as a woman here <laughs> in the room, I think everyone is interested because I will say, you know, my husband may not start out watching a true crime documentary, but get sucked in pretty quickly. But, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, throughout history, uh, women are communicators. We like to spread knowledge, right? We, at least in my household, I I tend to be the social planner and I want people to know when things are happening. (laughs) I think, but I think that's a skill, right? That's Yeah, my my wife always says if I wasn't here, we would literally do nothing. And it's true. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, that's a overgeneralization, but I do think that is a strength that many women have, that they can be community builders and kind of at its core, the true crime community, because we now have the internet and podcasts and Reddit and, you know, social media, we are able to create community much wider than we ever were before, right? Men can be just as good communicators. I don't think they can't be, but um, I wonder if that might have something to do with just, I know my inner drive to build community. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really interesting perspective. But from what I understand, most most men are terrible communicators, myself included. Um, I don't know if Brett would lump himself in there as well. <laughs> but well. before we finish this segment, I want I want to turn back to Brett for a second so he can communicate a little bit here. I don't want to leave you out of this conversation. Any thoughts in terms of like what has given rise to the true crime boom and why it's still so popular? Well, I guess is I guess I'm a minority when it comes to true crime listenership because I love mm. true crime. And I'm not a woman, but I do too, man. It's all right. It's okay. For me, for me, and actually, I don't know if this is a distinction or not. Like, I like mystery. I like unsolved things, mm. right? Those are my right. favorite. And I know there are a lot of people who listen to true crime who don't like the unsolved cases. They like solved <laughs> cases. They like to hear about the solved cases. And I always think that's weird because oh. that seems more boring to me because it's solved. And we do a mix of unsolved and solved on ours. But for me, I really like mystery. I like cases that haven't been solved. I like to try and figure out what happened and sort of get to the bottom of these enduring mysteries. So I know that's what always brought me in. And I think, I think people have always loved mysteries before the true crime podcast came along, you had law and order or, you know, murder, she wrote or whatever. And those were always, always really popular. And I think everything Alice said is true. And you take all of that and you combine it with just our love for mystery and our love for, for those kind of subjects. And I think true crime podcasts are just kind of perfect. They give you, everything you want in, you know, an hour. You don't have to commit a couple of weeks to reading a book. You listen yeah. to a show for an hour and you're getting getting all that in that one package. Yeah, I think that's interesting that you bring that up. Like I feel like a lot of a lot of times men tend to be fixers. So the notion that like there's an unsolved crime and you can participate in that and maybe be the one who breaks it or helps with that, I think there's some appeal to that, in my personal opinion. Thank you both. That was really interesting conversation. Again, that's Alice and Brett from the Prosecutors Podcast. But don't worry, because Alice and Brett will be right back. So hang on for our final segment. We'll take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about what our sponsors can do for your law practice. Then stay tuned for the Rump Roast. It's even more supple than the Roast Beast. Find out how TimeSolve fits your firm with six different ways to track time. Surely one will fit, even on the go or quickly estimate flat fee projects. Batch payments for hundreds of invoices at once with TimeSolve Pay. Getting paid quickly is definitely a great fit. And TimeSolve fits with the other tools you use. QuickBooks, LawPay, NetDocuments, LawRuler, Microsoft, and more, they all just plug in. Try TimeSolve for free and get a $100 Amazon gift card when you sign up at TimeSolve.com. Contract automation isn't a trend, it's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy to onboard, full suite of products that includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Partner with Rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, 
even during off hours. Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Welcome back, everybody. It's the rear end of the Legal Toolkit, the Rump Roast. It's a grab bag of short form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to pick? Well, because I'm the host. Brett, Alice, thanks for coming back. You're prosecutors, so I'm calling this segment Direct Examination because I have some more questions for you. (laughs) You will not have an opportunity for cross-examination, mostly because we don't have time for that, and you would probably take me to school if I did that. (laughs) You don't know any of these questions I'm going to ask, but are you nevertheless ready to proceed? Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I am not a real lawyer by any stretch of the imagination. I haven't practiced law in anger since 2006. And when I did, I was in private practice. So I once interviewed for an assistant DA position. And this is how it went. So I went into an office and the person who was interviewing me showed me a bunch of decapitated people and said to me, you see this kind of shit here every day. And I said, someone's decapitated in your city every day. I'm not sure if I want to work here. And then I was asked to leave the interview. (laughs) So they didn't like me very much. So, so I want to ask you, because you have experience in this, you're prosecutors. You think regardless of that, I might have made a decent prosecutor or no? Fantastic. <laughs> I have to agree. You have the voice of an angel. So yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. I wasn't you obviously are fearless. So. <laughs> and you say it like it is. I will say the jury loves it when you say it like it is. And if you walk really? in for a case of decapitation with that comment, you'd get some laughs. <laughs> Oh, man. I think I might have missed my call. And I'm depressed. Okay, I got to move on to the next question because it's going to make me sad. Okay, Alice, this one's for you. I was reading up on your bio on the Prosecutor's Podcast website, which everybody should check out. You're a fiddle player, right? I am a fiddle player, yes. Now, I wanted to know that in the earlier part of the show, you said you only had one hobby, but apparently you have at least two. (laughs) So first thing I want to ask you, is it true that people who think the violin is fancier than the fiddle are just pretentious assholes? Like I suspect they are. Yeah, so the exact same thing. A fiddle is a violin and a violin is a fiddle. It's just the way you play it. <laughs> Good. All right. I thought I was on the right track there. All right. So let me ask you. I asked you before, like, what was the toughest case you had to do on the podcast? What's the hardest song that you've tried to play on the fiddle but have had trouble with? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, Devil Went Down to Georgia is super fun because the point of playing it is like you're supposed to play the devil out of your violin or your fiddle and your fingers kind of start burning and there's calluses and blisters come off. So it's the most fun to play because the audience appreciates when you are literally losing your mind and like strings are popping and your bow hairs are, you know, (laughs) flying all over the place. So it's kind of a corporal experience, you know. I just want to say that Alice is so much cooler than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't worry, Brett. We'll get there. (laughs) I I actually have... So a friend of my friend is a great fiddle player. And I actually like have sat down one-on-one with somebody and watched them play that song. It is like a really frenetic experience. It's kind of crazy. And how many songs... Well, I I was going to say how many songs actually feature a fiddle. But Alice, I want to let you know that in honor of your fiddle playing, we're going to do a Spotify playlist for this podcast, all with songs about fiddles. So people may be thinking, like, can I find 20 songs about fiddles? 
I sure can. So if you have any recommendations on that, you just let me know and I'll add them to the playlist. They may be the only 20 songs that Spotify features, but <laughs> I like where your head's at. Hey, the fiddle's in vogue these days. Alice could be making a lot of money, you know, playing for like Mufford and Sons or something. In like, in the, in a multiverse, I'm probably a prosecutor getting laughs from the jury. And Alice is like a famous fiddle player. There you go. So Brad, I want to turn to you. Mm. I was reading your bio as well. You describe yourself as a Southern gentleman, which I can, I can see that. I can get that vibe. What's the most Southern thing you've done today? Like, did you have grits for breakfast? Are you wearing a seersucker suit right now? <laughs> no, that's, oh man, the most Southern thing I've done today. <laughs> do you oh, have God. a seersucker suit? I hope you do. I mean, I do have a seersucker suit. Yes. I love it. It's I fantastic. It. <laughs> yeah, it's the best. And the white patent leather shoes and the like yes. ribbon belt. Oh yeah, man. Can't wear it now though, because, you know, it's after Labor Day. But... <laughs> I've always wanted like a white seersucker suit, but being like a northerner, I don't know if I could pull it off. I just don't have that in you, me. You got to just go for it, man. You just right. got to go I for mean, it. I'm going to jump from for you a second, but Brett definitely wears yeah. his cowboy boots with every outfit. It's formal. It's artwork. <laughs> you know, like he, he commands presence when he walks into uh, in front of the jury with his boots on. Spurs or no spurs? No spurs for trial. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to ask you guys one more question. And I want to hit a true crime topic, but like one of the moment. And this came out like a few days ago. Um, I'm sure you saw that like there's this investigative team who says they've identified the Zodiac mm -hmm. Killer as somebody named Gary Francis Post. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but this could be another Chulu situation. Um, Brett, we'll keep it with you. Do you I think mean, this is real? The guy has three names, and his first name is Gary, so he's definitely in the realm of being the Zodiac Killer. I think that's the best evidence for him being the Zodiac Killer. But unfortunately... Wait, wait, wait. Is that a real thing? Oh, I'm the laughing, three-name thing? Is that like, is Absolutely. There, yeah. I, the three-name thing I get, but is that like a specific reference to Zodiac no, or no? No, it's just if you're going to be like a serial the, okay, killer, okay, okay. having three okay. names is an automatic. And Gary... All right. I, know, I, I, this is just again, a tip. I think the Green River Killer... His name was Gary. So, so this is a, this is a tip for naming yeah. your children. And, and apologies to any Gary. Garys out there. I'm not. I have no friends who are named name. Gary, but as long as you don't have three names in your name, Gary, you're fine. <laughs> All right. So there's, there's some potential. potential. I think that's the best evidence. I thought their other evidence was kind of weak, but the fact that his name was Gary. Oh, interesting. Pretty powerful. Yeah. Are you feeling the same way about this, Alice? <laughs> I'm not going to make such a wide-ranging uh, comment about three names <laughs> or people named Gary. My childhood friend Gary, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> but it, I think this happens a lot, and it's not necessarily good or bad. It's, I think it's always good when an unsolved case gets renewed attention, especially after a lot, a long time has passed. But you know, sometimes people cross the line of theory to we've solved the case. I don't know. We, we try mm -hmm. to stay away from jumping to conclusions when we haven't looked at the primary sources ourselves. You know, that's why on our podcast and in, in our real life, we look at the police report directly. We look at, you know, the DNA mm -hmm. results. And so I, I don't have any comments on that, except that I'm glad there's attention on the case uh, as I would be on right. any case, but whether it's actually solved, you know, theory doesn't equal solved. So we'll see. Uh, have you done an episode on Zodiac yet or no? Not yet. We have not. Oh, all right. So that might be coming down the pipe. No pressure. Hey, thanks for this. You guys were great. I appreciate your playing along. Thank you. Always this happy This was to. so great. Thanks, Brett and Alice. That was amazing. You can hear more from 
Alice and Brett on the Prosecutor's Podcast, where they review true crime cases from a prosecutor's point of view. Check it out. It really is awesome. And consider supporting their efforts through Patreon. Now, for those of you listening in Burnt Corn, Alabama, we've got a great Spotify playlist for you all this week. In honor of Alice's love for the fiddle, we've got fiddle songs. And yeah, you're goddamn right, I can make an entire playlist of songs featuring fiddles. Now, sadly, we've run out of time for me to reach a state of oneness with the universe. But I am drunk as fuck, so there's that. That'll do it for another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast, where we're into corn and nuts, but definitely not corn nuts. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.